0: Good morning. morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be back here, uh, preaching to you God's word with my church family this morning, uh, in our pastor's absence. We're continuing in our series through the book of First Samuel. First Samuel. Now, there's a curious name for this book. Prior to there being two books, both First and Second Samuel were one book called Samuel. It is neither authored by Samuel nor about Samuel, really. True, chapters 1 and 2 dealt with his birth and chapter 3 with his boyhood, but he's not even mentioned after the first verse of chapter 4 until today in chapter 7. By the time we get to the first verse in chapter 8, we read, When Samuel became old. While First Samuel goes 31 chapters, Samuel himself is dead by the beginning of chapter 25 and is briefly conjured up from the dead by a witch in chapter 28, and then is silent. He is not present at all in the 24 chapters of what we now call Second Samuel. What we have in the books of First and Second Samuel are not then an accounting of Samuel's life, but rather a reliable historical narrative of the nation of Israel's transition from her time of the Judges, into a monarchy, which includes her first two kings, Saul and David. Since chapter 8 actually begins the discussion of a monarchy, today, chapter 7, is the one chapter that we could say is really about God's servant, Samuel. At least it shows his adult leadership of the nation as a prophet and judge, with no reference yet to a king. This chapter is primarily an accounting of the second of many military engagements between the Philistines and the Israelites. Since the Israelites are God's chosen people, we can think of them maybe not so much as the good guys all the time, but at least the side for which we are rooting. If you were here a few weeks ago, you got to look at the first military engagement, which didn't go so well for the Israelites. These first two battles are very different. This morning I want to contrast them because I think we not only get an insight into Israel as a nation, but also a deeper understanding of God and finally a very relevant application for us. And then lastly, I'll finish with what I think is a profitable rabbit trail. Let's pray together. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for your very real presence in history. We thank you that you have allowed, planned, for us to be here today to look at a piece of that history. And we ask you to speak to each one of us through your living and active word. Amen. Oh, I didn't push the button that said blank. Okay. Back in chapter 4, we saw in verse 1, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Verse 2 told us they were defeated. In verse 3, they identified the Lord as having defeated them and determined among themselves that bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battle would save them from their enemy's powers. It didn't go well. There was a slaughter, and the ark was lost. It's almost as if the Israelites, with no reference to asking God what to do, said, We've got this. Then, things didn't work out. They asked God for help. Things still didn't work out. Their lack of success and deliverance suggests that God didn't prefer that approach. At least God alternately withholding and supplying his blessing is one way we can infer his approval when it's not clearly otherwise stated. Looking at today's battle, the approach, the subsequent outcomes are vastly different. Let's pick it up at the end of verse 2. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Today's New International Version puts it this way. Then all the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. I like that wording. It suggests an act of contrition and repentance. Both versions show that the Israelites did not approve of where they had been and that they were sorry. It probably doesn't really mean all, as in every member of the nation, but at least the leaders and representatives. When you read this, you just know things are going to go well, don't you? If we were back in our freshman literature class and read this, we would call that foreshadowing. Continuing in verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, true repentance, true turning to God requires action, not just words. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they serve the Lord only. In order to put them away, they had to have had them. So here we see the Israelites were worshiping the current popular cultural religion of that region. Baal was the son of Dagon that we read about the last two weeks. As the god of the harvest and the storm, Baal really was the chief god of the time. His feminine partner, Asherah, was the goddess of fertility and was often linked together with Baal in religious practice. Here they are in the plural form, Baal's, and the Ashtaroth, signifying the many representations or idols that were in the possession of God's chosen people at that time. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses, acting as God's prophet to his people at that time, very much like Samuel is at this time, said, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. In your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes, which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. By the way, this is the same portion of scripture that Jesus quoted when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, asking Christ to worship him in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world. After the Israelites put away these idols, in verse 4, in response to Samuel's request, Samuel knew that they were sincere and called them to worship God at the town of Mizpah. There they fasted and confessed their sins. This is a different Israel from chapter 4. So when they learn that the Philistines are coming to Mizpah in response to their gatherings so that they might attack the Israelites, do they say, hey, we've got this? Like before? No. Look back at the text, starting in verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Do you see the difference? Instead of saying, hey, we've got this, and bless us, God, They humbly fall before God and admit their dependence on him for help. This is different. Verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Last week, Mike mentioned how the sacrificing of cows was not condoned in Levitical law. How they were disobedient. Here, Samuel follows the law. Leviticus 22.27 says, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. You may wonder at the appropriateness of this act of animal sacrifice by Samuel, who is apparently from the tribe of Ephraim not a Levitical priest. It does seem strange. It's not the only time we're going to see him presenting a sacrifice. We know these sacrifices are acceptable to God and even directed by him in 1 Samuel 16 when he tells Samuel to anoint David as king. What we don't see but may assume is that there are Levitical priests doing the actual priestly function of animal sacrifice. In Psalm 99, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel are all mentioned together. But Moses and Aaron were Levites and priests, while Samuel was not. Notice in verse 6 how they are distinctly separated. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. Following the sacrifice and Samuel crying out to the Lord, the Philistines attacked. Look what happened. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. This term translated mighty sound literally means a great voice. Imagine the surprise and terror of the worshippers of Dagon and his son Baal God of the storm, being so clearly usurped and outdone by the one true God. Let me read to you uh, one of David's psalms about that voice and thunder to get a full measure of the majesty that was displayed by our God on that day. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the God who was invoked that day by Israel's dependents and Samuel crying out to him. The victory and slaughtering this time were Israel's. So opposite from chapter 4. In verse 12 we read, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called it its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us, or thus far the Lord has helped us. He sets up and names a rock as a commemorative benchmark. He gives God the glory for a victory that was otherwise inconceivable to both him and the frightened Israelites. He named the rock Ebenezer. I wonder why. Your Bible may tell you, as mine does, that Ebenezer means stone of help. But the only other times Ebenezer is referenced in all of Scripture are in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. There it was a place, not a rock. It was the very place the Israelites camped and were defeated in chapter 4. It was the very place the ark was captured in chapter 5. Wouldn't the name Ebenezer have been a sore spot? The very last name to give to commemorate something so completely opposite? I can't answer that question. Scripture is silent, so no one can answer it, at least not this side of glory. But the idea of a rock to represent something wonderful, well, that's my rabbit trail coming up soon. Verse 13 seems to suggest that the Philistines were so routed that they never caused trouble again. Not so. They were not completely subdued, just lessened for a time. In fact, they'll be battling the Israelites throughout this sermon series. Before David and Goliath, a Philistine, and way before King Saul is killed by the Philistines, just two chapters from where we are now, God promises that the coming king, Saul, will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That's in chapter 9, verse 16. As an aside, both the Philistines of the coast and the Amorites of the hills were descendants from Ham, one of Noah's three sons, from which all humanity descended. The Israelites descended from Shem, first called Shemites, later Semites, and later Semitic peoples. The Amorites were the direct descendants of Canaan and living in the land that God gave to the Israelites. God had commanded them to thrust out their enemies in Deuteronomy 6, remember? Therefore, Israel should not have been involved in the non-aggressive pact mentioned in verse 14. I know peace sounds ideal to us, but it can be an actual form of disobedience as it was here. Okay, here it comes, the summary of Saul's life. Given the name of two large Old Testament books, here in our concluding three verses is his pre-monarch ministry. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This area that's described is only uh, a few miles in scope. Only a fraction of the national territory of Israel. In a way, this description sets up or explains to the careful reader who was expected to come later and read this, it explains why there was a need for a stronger national figure, a king. That's next week. While the historical account was lengthy, the application is not. We, you and me, all of us, encounter problems, challenges, difficulties, continuously. A former pastor of mine used to say, problems are part of life. Either you are in one, you just came out of one, Or stand by, you're about to head into one soon. While yours and my problems aren't at the national level of an invading army, they do present each of us with a choice. As believers, how and when will we turn to God in the problem? The chapter 4 approach the Israelites took? Confidence, perhaps born of experience, Says, I've got this. I'll bring God in if things get too far, go too far sideways. The chapter seven approach, humility, perhaps born of experience, says, God, I need you before I try this on my own strength. Please help me. Last week, Pastor Mike, uh, Pike, that's Pastor and Mike together. Last week, Pastor Mike included the rich young ruler of Mark 10 in his sermon on First Samuel 6. Mike used the words, Yeah, I got these, as the perspective of that young man. Mike explained how Jesus knew the man's incorrect justification and went after it. In our home, there's a series we like to binge watch. It's called Alone on the History Channel. It's a reality show where contestants face wilderness survival challenges alone until only one person remains to win a cash prize. This past week, we watched all 12 episodes of 2021's Season 8, Grizzly Mountain. So, the same time I watched these uber-skilled mountain men and women, I was also planning today's sermon. The relevant real life application was so obvious to me. Every one of the contestants, rightfully so, is an egomaniac. They wax eloquent on their abilities and resolve to win as they approach every problem with a can do spirit that is inspiring to watch. Then, every one of them, when faced with an injury, Illness, serious mishap, or something terrifying that is absolutely beyond them says, Oh God. They, every one of them, are like the chapter 4 Israelites. It's sad to watch too because when they're really, things are really going well, they think things like Mother Nature or their earth spirit, or even the animals they just butchered, but never God. In conclusion, let's go on a rabbit trail about rocks. Let's go on a rocky road through Scripture. There are a lot of rocks in our Bible. Mike's sermon last week included a large rock on which the Philistine cows were sacrificed. Then, he read to us from Psalm 62, where David refers to God as his rock three times. There's a good reason for this. A rock is strong, solid, secure, and enduring. So it works well as a metaphor in Scripture. Consider Jacob using a stone as a pillow during his flight from Esau in Genesis 28. When he awoke from his dream, where God promised to be with him and to give him the land, he used the stone as a commemorative pillar, calling it the house of God, or Bethel. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Consider uh, Joshua crossing the parted waters of the Jordan River and Joshua 3 leading the Israelites into the promised land in a manner similar to Moses leading them from Egypt through the parted waters of the Red Sea. In chapter 4, Joshua had 12 stones brought up from the riverbed and set up to commemorate God's mighty deed. forever. Consider today's text, Samuel taking a stone and naming it Ebenezer to commemorate God's help given to those who ask for it. Consider Isaiah, writing God's word in Isaiah 17, where God refers to himself as their rock, a fortress to be trusted. You have forgotten God, your Savior. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Consider Jesus describing himself in Luke 20 as a rock of offense rejected, crushing some and later being lifted up as the chief cornerstone from which our church takes its name. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's referring to himself. Consider Peter, the disciple that Jesus named, to describe him as a rock. Starting with that cornerstone and laying out a construction project in 1 Peter 2, where we are all stones used in the spiritual building with Jesus, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Shoot for you, note takers. The verse is not displayed there. That's First uh, Peter two. Well, must be verses 4 and 5. The confidence provided in all of these passages along the rocky road is in God, not in ourselves. We can be victorious in a military battle. We can prevail in a wilderness survival contest in Alaska, Canada. And we can overcome whatever real obstacle we came to church with this morning. But not by our might, by God's. I think that's the lesson here. Do you ever sing in the shower? The song I have sung far more than any other, really to the point of obsession, Is Andre Crouch's 1969 I've Got Confidence, which sounds wrong. That sounds like the chapter four approach I've Got Confidence. But the chorus that repeats goes like this I've Got Confidence, God is going to see me through. No matter what the case may be, I know He's going to fix it for me. Let's pray. God, you and you alone are our confidence. We thank you for coming to your people's aid against the Philistines at Mizpah. We thank you for being their rock. We thank you for being willing and available to come to our aid today. We thank you for being our rock. We trust in you. Amen.